0: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back to our third session, where we focus on pro-poor supply chains for internationally-traded products. My name is Dan Evans. I'm very pleased to serve your session chair. Based on my role as deputy chairman of Business for Millennium Development, B4MD, um, one of whose uh, management team, Paul Vautier, was a panelist this morning. I'm pleased to note that B4MD is an important contributor today. In addition to Paul spoke this morning to myself, of our member companies are presenting case studies. You heard from Ross Hunt from Oil Search. And in the next session, you'll hear from George Jago, who's come from Geneva, who's with Medicine's Malaria Venture, to present a case study on product partnerships. Ross's CEO, Peter Botten, is a fellow board member of mine, on um, BFMd. You've heard some talk this morning about the business and development study, copies of which were available in the back. One thing I'd like to bring to your attention is that this was um, contracted by AUSA, as you know. b did this in collaboration with a very special unit within Accenture that's a not-for-profit that Accenture built about five or six years ago called Accenture Development Partnerships. They're actually, as I a not-for-profit, and they've been set up in order to use their skills for foundations, NGOs, governments, so that they can have the benefit of the range of Accenture um, commercial skill sets. i bring this up now because when we talk about PPPs, one of the elements I think that never gets thought about is the role of professional service firms. And I would venture to say that there's an important role that they can play if, in fact, they're challenged to play. And I think Accenture have led the way in that So that on the back, if you pick up a copy of this, you can read a little bit about Accenture Development Partnerships, um, who are alliance partners of B4MD. Our session presents a very important opportunity for us to learn from each other by sharing some of our positive experiences and related insights. Importantly, I'd also challenge you to consider sharing some of the disappointments and values you've had in what we recognize as a very challenging field, so we can share some of our hard-won and potentially quite expensive insights. Very briefly, some background on my own experience and interest in supply chains. Essentially, it's based on two main perspectives developed over the past 14 years. The first of these was that as an end-member industrial client, specifically the global mining sector. This experience was gained as an Accenture strategy partner, serving as their global mining and metals industry expert due to my prior 26 years with Western mining. Lastly, as their vice president exploration of Africa and Eurasia. In 2000, at Accenture, we did the first-ever external survey of the global mining and metal sector supply chain practices. This comprised a gap analysis of over 30 companies conducted by personally interviewing supply chain managers against an Accenture framework of cross-industry best practices. The survey results were published here in Australian BRW and demonstrated that the global mining industry's surprisingly strong lack of supply chain awareness and expertise existed Extension estimated the gap against cross-industry best practice to cost the sector many hundreds of millions of dollars per year. This was at a time of strongly depressed metal prices and related very strong, very poor company profitability. Perhaps this has some relevance in our session, as the global mineral sector is a very obvious client in the developing world for pro-poor supply chains, particularly on agricultural products various contracting services. A more direct relevance to this session on internationally traded products are the perspectives I've developed during my five years on the B4MD board, attempting to help motivate and catalyze Australian corporates to develop inclusive business projects to advance the MDGs. That's a fundamental underpinning of B4MD. We're all about advancing MDG, MDGs through corporate uh, business initiatives in the developing world. So far, people of the initiated projects are still in very formative (coughs) stages and restricted to PNG in Indonesia. Each of the roughly six current projects are designed to increase economic activity based on agribusinesses integrated into either major resource operations, local supply chains, or for export, potentially after initial in-country intermediate processing, and then into the international supply chain of global corporates. Such as Coco for Marles and Desler. So I think that's enough background on myself, enough on B from D. And what I'd like to do now is to move on to a panel on an issue of our case study. We've got an international team to present the case study. We have Sandra and Rachel have come in from Auckland, and then Michael has come from Ley and PNG. So the way we're going to proceed is we're going to have the case study. And then Michael, who's a panelist, is going to come and present the national perspective, if you like, the in-country partner perspective, you know through his, through his involvement with the PNG Coffee Industry Association. After that, we'll immediately go and ask for opening comments from Joshua and Tim, our other two panelists, whose brief CVs are here, the material you've already got, so I don't think we need to go back over that. After we've done that and we've set the scene, then we'll start interacting in around the key themes of the session. Okay, so I'll ask Senator Mark.
1: So um, good afternoon everyone. I'm Sandra Mendes. I am here with my colleague Rachel Levine from Fair Trail Australia and New Zealand and Michael Toliman from PNG's National Commodity Board for Coffee, the Coffee Industry Corporation. First we would like to thank Australian National University, especially Margaret Cullen, for inviting us and for being such a welcoming host, Mm. lunch was delicious. (laughs) We are here today to talk about Fairtrade, in very, very technical terms. um, We uh, have to say that Fairtrade is a certification system that allows consumers to identify products through the use of the Fairtrade label, to identify products that have complied with international standards. However, Fairtrade is also a partnership between farmers, business and consumers which stimulates economic activity and creates positive development outcomes. Today we will share with you a short introduction to the Fairtrade system and then we will focus on our work with Legnassi Coffee Growers Cooperative Society. We will also touch on the growth of the Fairtrade market in Australia and its associated impacts, and the potential for fair trade impact in the Pacific region, and using the example of Kuapa Kua Cocoa in Ghana.
0: Right. To machine. Head to machine. Here we
1: go. So at the moment, fair trade is bringing benefits to 1.2 million farmers and agricultural workers in the developing world and this is thanks to consumers in more than 120 who spent almost 5 billion euros on Fairtrade certified products last year. Fairtrade certification system uh, has two main components, the Fairtrade standards and Fairtrade benefits. Fair Trade standards are designed to encourage the sustainable development of small scale producers and agricultural workers in developing countries. <coughs> standards are uh, set based on consultation with all stakeholders in the Fair Trade system and also according to the ICL Code of Practice for Standard settings. Setting. This ensures that standards are accessible and credible. Fair trade is unique because um, it's, it's a system that is jointly um, owned by farmers and business, which means that the standards um, and benefits have been designed to meet the needs of both parties and those in between. Well, now let's talk about uh, fair trade benefits. First, a fair and a stable price regardless of the ups and downs of the commodity market. This is known as the fair trade minimum price, which acts as a safety net when the market price drops and it aims to cover the cost of sustainable production for each of the products that are fair trade certifiable. Second, the freedom to uh, financially invest in local community and business Development. This is known as the Fair Trade Premium. It is the sum of money paid on top of the agreed upon minimum price for investment in social, environmental, or economic development projects that meet the needs of the producer groups. And a third benefit empowerment. Fair Trade allows farmers to take control over the business and to invest in their communities and to choose their own path for development. As I said before, we hear today, um, my colleague and I, from Fairtrade ANZ, which is a full and active member of Fairtrade International. Our mandate is to promote fair trade products in Australia and New Zealand and to support farmers based in the Pacific Islands to enter and to benefit from the system. The promotion of virtual products is done by our business development team, from which we are happy to have our colleagues Craig Chester and Daniel Mackey here today with us. And uh, our producer support and relations project, which will refer us to the PSR project, is responsible for delivering services to producers in the Pacific. Now, we would like to to share with you our work with NegNasi Coffee Growers Cooperative Society, which is located in the Morobi province of Papua New Guinea. NegNasi is a cooperative of 423 members that come from nine villages and belong to 54 tribes. Members grow Arabic coffee in the mountains outside Leh. And the organization was first registered in 2008, and in 2011 they achieved Fairtrade certification. The development of NEGNASI was the result of a collaboration with PNG's National Commodity Board for Coffee, the Coffee Industry Corporation, or CIC, NEGNASI's exporter, New Guinea Coffee, Tea and Spices, the Secretariat for the Pacific Community, and Fairtrade ANZ. Our intervention with the has been the following. We supported them to understand and comply with fair trade standards. We helped them to complete their fair trade application and to achieve certification. We provided training in business and financial management. And in order to further develop the coffee business, we liaised with potential buyers in Australia and New Zealand, and we arrange for samples of their coffee to be sent to them. We organized coffee cappings in New Zealand for buyers to test their coffee. We supported the participation of Negnasis chairperson at the Fair Trade Asian Pacific Coffee Forum held last year in Indonesia. And finally, we hosted Michael Toliman uh, of PNG CIC to ANZ's annual awareness raising event Fair Trade for Night. And this to further promote Negnasi and his coffee in the two countries. We are very, very fortunate to have Michael here with us today. Michael has spent the last four years <coughs> working with Ignazzi and he will tell us more about the Negnasi's fair trade story later. Results. As a result of this intervention in 2011 Ignazzi sold its first container of fair trade certified coffee to a buyer in New Zealand and has earned a total of eight thousand Australian uh, dollars in Fair Trade Premium. Nagnasi is planning to use the Fair Trade Premium on improving the water supply mm-hmm. system. This will bring clean water <coughs> to the members' uh, gardens, will improve the quality of their coffee, the health of their gardens and also their families. Our support for NAGNASI was possible for three reasons. First, we had a strong partnership with local organizations like CSC, New Guinea Coffee, the exporter, and SPC. Second, farmers were committed to the project. And third, because we had funding. Well, now we will hear from Rachel, a summary of Nagnasi's progress, and some lessons learned. Thank you very much.
0: Good. Thanks.
2: Thank you, Sandra. Hello, everyone. Thanks again for having us. So, Nignasi is a strong example of the development potential of fair trade. The cooperative follows the fair trade structure as a model for its development. As is done by successful producer organizations around the world, McNassi has adapted the fair trade model to meet their local circumstances. Members are committed to their coffee and to their membership in NACNASI. They trust the organization because they're seeing results. The cooperative follows best practices of production based on the fair trade standards, which are encouraged by extension officers at our partners CIC and New Guinea Coffee. As a result, coffee gardens are improved and production is improved. Through fair trade, Niknasi is improving its infrastructure as well, with their plans to upgrade their existing water supply system. Niknasi is attracting the attention of other producer organizations in the country who would like to develop in a similar way based on the fair trade system. And as a result of their progress and success, CIC has made NICNASI the national model for the development of smallholder coffee producer organizations in the country. <coughs> to give you an idea of some of the lessons learned through our work with NICNASI, we recognize the importance of accommodating the local context in PNG and its understanding of develop, development, social organization, and business. Our work in that regard has focused on supporting the development of a regional fair trade subnetwork to represent regional needs in the international fair trade system, working to ensure that standards and prices meet the local context and translating standards and tools into local languages. We're seeing strong interest by producers, bid- businesses and consumers to develop regional supply chains. And finally, we recognize the importance of communi- communicating a clear message to farmers about their important link with businesses and consumers, and conversely, communicating to business and consumers about why buying Fair trade certified products makes a difference to the lives of producers in developing countries. So now, how is the Australian market delivering economic benefits back to Fair trade certified coffee producers? We quantify the fair trade economic benefit as, the following, as a sum of the following three amounts. First is the fair trade price benefit, which is indicated in blue. And this is the difference between the New York Sea market price for coffee and the fair trade minimum price. Uh, the fair trade minimum price for washed Arabica coffee is $1.40 US per pound. So as Sandra explained, the fair trade minimum price acts as a safety net when the market price drops to unsustainable levels. And thus, you'll see that in 2007, 2010, and 2011, when the market price was above the minimum price, farmers were fortunate to not rely on the safety net provided provided by the fair trade minimum price. (coughs) Second indicated in green is the fair trade organic differential, which is the additional $0.30 US per pound for organic certified coffee. And third, in red, is the fair trade premium, which is 20 cents US per pound. So since 2004, when fair trade products were first introduced into the Australian market, the fair trade economic benefit as the result of fair trade sales has increased dramatically for a total of 2.1 million Australian dollars in 2011. Since Australia and New Zealand is one of the most rapidly growing fair trade markets in the world, there's significant potential to increase fair trade benefits to farmers as a result of sales in ANZ. In addition to sales, recognition of fair trade continues to grow in the Australian market, with nearly half of Australians recognizing the fair trade mark, which is the highest awareness among ethical labels sold in Australia. (coughs) As over 70% of consumers become aware of fair trade through packaging, Commercial partnerships with Australian retail-based business are essential. Many of these businesses are furthering their support by fair trade by by partnering with us to develop regional supply chains, which supports local producers of course, and which consumers in Australia are keen to support as well. Combined with supply chain savings from scaling up regional production, there's a strong business case for commercial partnerships to expand further within Australia. To expand beyond coffee and to give you an idea of the impact that trade is having due to the commitment of global brands, the Cadbury Cocoa Partnership in West Africa is delivering over 47,000 metric tons of trade cocoa into global markets. Sales of trade certified Cadbury chocolate in ANZ accounts for 17% of that volume, which generates market access equating to $113 million Australian dollars in sales and over $1.3 million in fair trade premium for development within West Africa. With Cadbury's plans to expand production under the more aggressive MDLZ business strategy, which is Kraft's new corporate model for its snacks division, the opportunities to replicate the success in this region are significant. To give you an idea of the impact that commitment to fair trade like Cadbury's is having in Africa, and to give you an insight into the potential for a young organization like Niknasi, I'll tell you a bit about Coapa Coco, which is a farmer union that represents almost 50,000 small-scale cocoa producers in Ghana. Coapa has used the fair trade premium to fund a range of community and business development projects in its 17 years as a fair trade certified producer organization, These include training programs in management and leadership skills, the support of agricultural officers, four schools, two daycare centers, and two mobile cinemas, scales and machines giving farmers greater control over their production process and increasing their revenue by adding value to their product, a credit union to provide members with access to credit and banking services, alternative income generating schemes (coughs) such as soap making, Corn milling and snail farming for the local and export markets, mobile health clinics, and 174 boreholes to provide access to clean drinking water. Uh, so, as you can see from, from the text that I've borrowed from Coapa's website, they're committed to the values that are promoted by Fair Trade and are truly an example of a producer organization that follows the Fair Trade standards as a set of best practices to develop their business and their community. So just to conclude, uh, Fairtrade ANZ will work to continue our, our support to producer organizations who are growing coffee, cocoa, vanilla, sugar and fresh fruits. And in order to continue to drive the growth of Fairtrade, focus our efforts on cocoa producer organizations in response to growing demand for Fairtrade cocoa from the region. Our current PSR project Focuses on PNG in the Pacific Islands and is supported by the New Zealand Aid Program and the International Fund for Agricultural Development. In the future, as Southeast Asian supply chains are very important to the Australian market and are currently underdeveloped within fair trade, we see the potential to, to expand our support services to Southeast Asia and likewise our partnerships um, with support organizations and donors so that a greater number of farmers, workers, and their communities can receive the benefits of Fair Trade certification. Thanks for your attention.
3: Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat>
0: okay. Michael. Now we'll hear the local, in-country, national perspective on, on the relationship.
3: Good afternoon, everyone. I will provide to you the independent view of the value of fair trade to NACNASI. I work as an extension officer, and beginning in 2008, I, 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 I was working very closely with the NACNASI Coffee Growers Cooperative Society. The coffee industry in Papua New Guinea has struggled to, to organize the smallholders into a, a marketing system that helps the marginalized people with where, the, where there is very minimal government presence. This is an understanding of what fair trade means to us. That's the coffee tree. That's the farmer in Bosagan village, where I live, up the mountains. It's not his house or his well being, the school, the church activities for spiritual guidance. Is food crops, and then you have the system of market or the market chain. For the past years, we've seen, and what we can experience and and say, you got in the market chain of coffee, you got the producer, you got the processor, exporter, importer, Mm -hmm. roaster, then (laughs) Consumer. <laughs> the processor expects the farmer to produce the best quality, but in his lifestyle, the cash crop is only part of an aspect of his communal <coughs> relationship. Then the exporter expects the processor to give him the quality produced. And together with the processor, it's a double expectation on this fellow. And then the importer expects the same. Very, 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 they earnestly they demand quality and consistency in supply than the importer. So all this is a weight on him, and the coffee is only an aspect of his living relationship in the community. What trade has done <coughs> is that look at the way we've been doing business with coffee, with cocoa. And then, got the producer, Nek Nasi, to meet with the processor, the exporter, importer, the roaster, and consumers to come together and think about who is struggling in the system. So they suggested uh, incentives or an assistance in the system called the premium on top of the price that you, you negotiated for. This is an experience which we are very grateful for, and Fairtrade promotes a dialogue among the actors in the supply chain, and takes the initiative and provides the leadership to better the marketing system, especially to help the struggling and rural communities to improve their living standards. With that experience and the success in the NACI cooperative, the Coffee Industry Corporation has declared it as the national model and CIC and Fairtrade Australia and New Zealand have signed a memorandum of understanding for the support to fair trade to go to all the coffee growers in Papua New Guinea beginning with Morobe province. With that I also took part uh, was the invited guest during the Fairtrade fortnight this year and I came to meet consumers. And they were glad to hear about the story, and they wanted to support it in ways that they can. So with that, what the fair trade does is that every community that is producing co- or coffee, they have the certification system. They, 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 they comply with the standards, and then when they sell their product, products, there is a fair trade logo attached to the product produced by the uh, small produce organization. What you, I encourage you to do when you go to the supermarket, you look for a product that bears the fair trade label, and as you buy the product, the money you spend makes a difference to this fellow, to this community. With that, we are all part of this ethical thinking about how we can help everyone in the supply chain, the, the system in which we live, so that we can make improvements to, to the inequalities that we perceive. With that, I would want to cheer you up with a, with a, a little action pet uh, activity. And I want all of you to lift your left hand <laughs> and your right hand, you point your finger. This is about cooperative, and we, we, call, it, we call this the Fair Trade Clap. Okay, <laughs> start clapping with one finger. As hard as you can. The noise is not that big, is it? Now increase to two fingers, clap as hard as you can. It means my cooperative with fair trade working together. That's yes, impact. Increase to three fingers. It means my cooperative Fairtrane and ANU talking about this. Now increase to four fingers. My property, yeah. fair trade, A N U, and OSAID. We, we can partner. That's the same thing. And all of you were smiling. At the end of all this work, we want to be happy. Yeah, well so please, I appeal, and I would, I, I will remain a supporter of the fair trade until I die. <laughs> because there are standards that, if you want to be a prudent person living on earth. Or, uh, taking care of what you are doing, there are standards to, to grow into. Uh, there's a discipline that you realize and that makes a difference. And I would want every one of us to be part of that initiative, where we can all be smiling and having a good life. <laughs> With that, thank you very much.
0: Okay. <laughs> okay. And the surprising thing, none of us knew we had programmed entertainment (laughs) midway through the session. Okay, now now the challenge is to Joshua, perhaps a bit of a
4: hard act to follow, but I'm sure he's up to it. (laughs) Go for it. Thanks very much. Is this on? Yes, okay. Uh, Thanks. My name is Joshua Bishop. I work for um, the Worldwide Fund for Nature uh, based here in Australia in Sydney. Um, I've been doing um, the economics of environment and development for quite a few years now. Um, and most recently, I've been working on business engagement and environmental management and joined WWF about a year ago. Um, WWF, to borrow a phrase from somebody uh, this morning, is engaged in the private provision of public goods. But we do it on a not-for-profit basis, um, which is a challenge, as you can imagine. Uh, what I'd like to do very briefly is talk a little bit about what WWF does in supply chain management for uh, internationally traded commodities, Some of the claims and counterclaims that have been made about certification and labeling in particular, Um, briefly touch on uh, the evidence and its limited evidence, as as Jane Thomason pointed out, on the impacts of of these schemes, and lastly, if there's time, just uh, a couple of thoughts on what aid agencies can do in this space, uh, and AusAid in particular. Um, Firstly, I should point out that WWF is heavily involved in supply chain management for internationally traded products. That's the topic of this session. We focus on 15 so-called soft commodities. Uh, That includes four wild-caught fish species, two farmed fish species, timber, pulp and paper, biofuels, and six agricultural commodities. Um, We helped set up um, and remain very much involved in several leading performance standards and related certification schemes, such as the Forest Stewardship Council, the Marine Stewardship Council, the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil, but also... Uh, similar roundtables for cotton, sugar, farmed fish, soybeans, biofuels, and recently beef. Uh, and what we do in this area is try hard to persuade major buyers of these commodities to commit to purchase products that meet these standards, but also to inform consumers about sustainable choices that are available to them and to assist producers to meet that those standards. Uh, turning to the, I suppose, the case for, for doing this, the case for certification, I think firstly I would emphasize that there are significant environmental and social values that markets generally ignore and that governments demonstrably fail to protect Um, and climate change, uh, water quality and biodiversity are just examples of those Um, and we know from quite a lot of research over many years that poor countries and poor households within countries often rely disproportionately on natural resources and are disproportionately affected by environmental decline. We also know that the production of commodities for both domestic consumption and export is one of the main threats to these environmental values and that commodity production can also have negative social impacts, for example, expropriation of land when uh, large plantations come into a remote area. Um, In the absence of effective government regulation or an effective market incentive for environmental protection and for poverty reduction we believe there's a case for voluntary action by NGOs and companies that are willing to go beyond compliance and we believe further that voluntary certification can be a useful mechanism to validate the quality of social and environmental management by commodity producers and give market recognition to good performance I would want to emphasize here that most of the uh, certification schemes, obviously fair trade, but also most of the so-called green labels or eco-labels do include very explicit goals and fairly elaborate processes for recognizing impacts on vulnerable groups, (laughs) provisions around labor rights, local and indigenous communities, and operational health and safety. And in theory, uh, we believe that certification can shift demand away from poor performers and towards better performers in social and economic and environmental terms. Um, we further expect that widespread adoption of these schemes will deliver um, real social and environmental benefits relative to business as usual. But that, that's a hypothesis. I have to confess. I think, in the best case, we do have examples that demonstrate that certification pays for itself through increased efficiency of. Uh, the use of inputs and, and resources, or through a market preference for certified products. And we heard about the price premium for fair trade products, for example. Um, even if certification fails to shift the entire market by itself, uh, we've seen some evidence that it can stimulate wider change in environmental regulations, raising the minimum performance bar as well as uh, the high end. So those are some of the, the claims that uh, environmental groups like WWF make for Uh, supply chain management and certification generally. There is criticism, and we acknowledge that. Um, Firstly, that these schemes impose inappropriate external values and preferences on developing country exporters. I'm not saying I believe all of these, but I'm acknowledging these criticisms. Um, Secondly, that that imposition of external preferences um, takes the form of a kind of green protectionism, locking out developing country producers and exporters from from markets, and that this protectionism is partly due to the prohibitive costs for some developing country producers to meet those standards, particularly smallholders. Um, one of the reasons why it is prohibitively costly is because of the money, uh, the cost involved in uh, meeting the standard and in carrying out the audits and certification process itself. And there's an argument that. These schemes are wasting money on um, essentially auditors and, and bureaucrats uh, checking up on performance. Um, another problem uh, with some of the schemes is that the, the so called green premium fails to materialize. So, we, we heard about the price premium in fair trade schemes, that's built in, but in a lot of the environmental certification schemes, there is no guaranteed price premium, and we've seen, in fact, that very often um, that does not materialize, as I said. On the demand side, there's critiques that uh, the uptake is by consumers is pretty limited, um, that the, there may be a proliferation of different labels that confuses uh, consumers or induces skepticism. Um, on the supply side, uh, some would argue that these schemes are not justified by the environmental impacts of production or that uh, essentially we're just recognizing good performers who are already doing uh, good practices, so there's no additionality fails to address the worst performers and the worst impacts. People refer to greenwashing of poor poor environmental performance, and I'll give an example of certification of biodiversity management and tobacco production. Uh, British American Tobacco is very proud of their their biodiversity management schemes, but some would argue that's besides the point. Um, I think fundamentally there's a, a criticism that is valid, and that is that these schemes fail to provide positive incentives for environmental conservation. Um, or indeed, for uh, well, I'll stick with the environmental side because I know it better. So, for example, certified coffee production is all very well and it may generate a price premium for producers, but it's not the same as the forest that it replaces. And so, there's the, we're still losing out on some of the environmental benefits, even if we're reducing the damage. Um, and lastly, I suppose there's an argument that uh, these schemes can undermine private property rights by imposing uncompensated costs on producers. Um, and I'm sure Tim will tell us more about some of these issues. But what's what's the evidence um, on the demand side? I think we we can see that more and more companies have made public commitments to sustainable sourcing of these products. Um, I could list a whole bunch of big na- brand names that you would recognize, um, and they've done this for a range of different commodities. I won't list them. Most of these companies are relying on third-party certification to validate the sustainability of their supply chain so they don't self-certify they rely on these schemes to to make credible claims and producers have responded by getting certified so currently about 10 percent of global timber supply is uh, certified to the FSC standard that's WWF's preferred standard and uh, probably double or triple that uh, certified to uh, the major competing for a certification standard six percent of pulp and paper eleven percent of wild caught seafood fourteen percent of palm oil and those are only the percentages of the labels preferred by WWF. As I said, there are other schemes that um, have to be added to that. Um, what little we know from consumer surveys suggests that shoppers do care about how goods are produced. Um, and we do, therefore, can, we can anticipate that these things are likely to continue. I'm aware that I'm running out of time. Um, just on the social impacts in particular, I think it's... it's widely acknowledged that we lack large-scale long-term evaluations using robust uh, methodology uh, to assess the performance of these schemes and we rely far too heavily on case studies. Um, I think m- most of the literature I've seen ends with a plea for much more rigorous research on the social and environmental impacts of certification and it's hardly surprising as most of these schemes are relatively young um, and uh, they don't have a huge market share. And WWF likewise recognizes that. I'm going to stop there and hope that maybe there'll be a chance to talk a little bit more about what uh, AusAid and aid agencies generally can do in this space. Yeah. Thanks.
0: Thanks, Joshua. Thanks, Joshua. Tim?
5: Thank you very much, and I am conscious to keep my remarks brief. Um, My name's Tim Wilson, I have long title at the Institute of Public Affairs, but one of my areas is free trade, and the IPA is the world's oldest free market think tank, founded in 1943 to, and I'm going to use your phrase here, what was it, Uh, the private delivery of public goods, Uh, and we see the private delivery of public goods to advance the ideas of free market capitalism, and that of course makes me somewhat the contrarian, though not for contrarian's sake in this discussion. There are many criticisms I have of certification schemes, but in and of themselves, I do not see them as an evil. In fact, sometimes I think they can play a very valuable role because certification schemes have within themselves, so long as they're voluntary, very much a place within the capitalist system. They operate uh, to reflect people's consumer choices and values and, of course, producer values and throughout the supply chain, their values as well, whatever they may be. My main criticism has been that the extent to which they are voluntary And uh, to the extent that those who advocate for them wish to remain them to be voluntary, and I've written papers about this in the past, looking at fair trade and how Oxfam has wanted it, Uh, fair trade standards in in the coffee industry to be adopted through government regulation, we've seen it in the cases... Uh, of palm oil, for instance, where advocates have wanted to see it adopted in uh, uh, palm oil standards in government regulation here uh, a, as part of trade barriers to restrict access for uh, non-certified uh, products within the marketplace, etc. And so I think there's a, a, there are very serious concerns about whether they remain a voluntary instrument to try and drive change uh, uh, for economic development. Um, I also have uh, a very differing attitude towards different types of schemes. For instance, fair trade for coffee is designed to address a symptom rather than the cause. If you look back at the historical price trends of coffee, it's quite clear that when coffee first came about, Uh, Fair trade tracked itself towards coffee for the first time, it was when international prices were very low because there was an international oversupply. I'm not saying all of those concerns have been addressed, but by and large, the price of coffee is significantly higher than it used to be and has addressed a lot of the price concerns. It may not address some of the environmental and social concerns, but certainly price concerns. Whereas cocoa is a very different product because of the issues around slave labour that's used uh, in parts of Africa to uh, extract cocoa, and those to me are very different issues, um, and are in themselves problems not raised by capitalism, but the absence of the instruments of capitalism and free market capitalism. Of uh, the first foundations of that is private property rights as a measure to make sure that people own their own lives and then are able to uh, take advantage of uh, their their labours and in, and uh, and benefit towards themselves and also to the general community. Uh, Where I think in terms of the aid debate uh, certification standards need to sit is, of course, uh, if people wish to engage them on a voluntary basis, they're more than welcome to. I don't think it's a good policy for aid budgets and aid resources to go towards supporting essentially private sector measures of how to uh, regulate supply chains, even if it's in a voluntary setting, particularly because of the potential for those voluntary standards to then capture industries and then regulate them. What aid funding should be going towards is building the uh, institutions to make sure that uh, markets can effectively operate. And there is a very serious need in parts of the world to solidify uh, private property rights, to establish... uh, predictable and legal courts to enforce contracts so that people can attract finance, so they can develop their what their private property is to grow uh, and to become economically prosperous over an organic process of economic development, rather than trying to do it through a top-down perspective uh, of private regulation, although in itself, as I said, as long as it's voluntary, I don't have a problem with it, to, uh, to promote economic development that is sustainable. I think I'm pretty close to my five minutes and I'd rather have a discussion. Thank you.